Hey friends, looking for some great business content other than right here on Accelerate? Then check out C-Suite TV and watch in-depth interviews with business content for C-Suite leaders and entrepreneurs, including an interview with me, your favorite podcast host. And it's all on demand. Watch and get insider secrets on demand by going to csuitetv.com. That's c-suitetv.com. Business insights on demand. Okay, let's do the show. It's time to accelerate. Hi, this is Andy. Welcome to episode 464 of Accelerate, where I hold in-depth conversations with today's leading experts in sales, marketing, and leadership six days a week. Hey, a couple quick items before we meet today's guest, Lee Carraher. If you like the show, it would really help out if you subscribe to Accelerate. Please be sure to go to iTunes or do it via the podcast app on your phone. And while you're there, please leave us a review. We really want to hear from you. So, friends, if you're looking for new ideas about how to amp up your sales, then please go to accelerate.fm forward slash spark. Get my free ebook, How to Spark a Sales Turnaround. It's based on my interviews with over 300 sales experts right on this show. And I ask them what they would do to execute a sales turnaround on their business. And I've compiled their recommendations into a practical step-by-step guide that you can use to accelerate your sales today. So don't wait. Go to accelerate.fm forward slash spark to get your free copy of How to Spark a Sales Turnaround. I'm excited to be joined on the show again for the second time by Lee Carraher. You can catch our first conversation on episode 79. Lee is the CEO of Double Forte, a digital agency in San Francisco. She's a keynote speaker and an author. She wrote a book called Millennials in Management, The Essential Guide to Making It Work at Work, which we talked about in our first conversation, I said, back in episode 79. And most recently, she wrote The Boomerang Principle, Inspire Lifetime Loyalty from Your Employees. And that's going to be the subject of our conversation today. Lee, welcome to Accelerate, or should I say, welcome back to Accelerate. Andy, it is so great to be back with you. Thank you so much for having me. Well, yeah, and as as I'd mentioned, I think once before, is is you make me feel lazy because since ah. the time I published my last book, you've written two books and published them. So I, I'm getting well. off this. I'm I'm working on my third book, but as soon as this interview is <laughs> done, I'm getting back and writing. So, but you have 400 episodes of your podcast, so I know true. where the time has gone. <laughs> true, that's true. I probably could have written ten books in that time, but uh, there you go. There you go. <laughs> But I wouldn't have. But yeah. <laughs> All right. So I really like this book that you wrote because you. it certainly reflects some experience that, that I've had with some companies I've worked with. And so let's just sort of dive into it. What is the boomerang principle? The boomerang principle is the concept that companies or organizations that encourage and allow former employees to return have a strategic advantage over those that don't. In a nutshell. In a nutshell. Okay, so welcoming back people that left under some set of circumstances to come back into mm-hmm. the fold. And yeah, I'm in the service of so you can see some some benefits. I mean, certainly <laughs> shorter time to onboard and ramp them up for sure. Yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you find that when people come back, is you know, is the research showing that that if somebody returns to a company, they actually end up staying longer? So a few things about um, people who return. One is uh, they do have a shorter onboarding, but you have to remember that they're coming back to something different than, than what they left. Mm-hmm. So you have to be intentional about that. The residual goodness halo effect of someone um, who is a high performer who returns to you, because one assumes you're only hiring high performers who returns to you um, is so positive for 
existing employees like, oh, wow, it's not, you know, it's good here. You know, it's good here. Um, that uh, has a huge residual effect that we're just starting to measure now. And then uh, what we have seen is in this, there's not a whole lot of research on this, you know, from major organizations and institutions, but the people I talked to who were boomerangs all stayed longer the second or even third time um, than their first ten- set of tenure. Hmm. It's like going back home and living with your parents. <laughs> well, hopefully. Except hopefully those are shorter increments on the, <laughs> the subsequent Please, ones. Please, <laughs> Lord. Oh, my gosh. I have a 19-year-old. I'm just, oh, my gosh. Your, your, um, time, your time is coming, yeah, yes. My time is coming. Well, I think that it's, um, hopefully it's not exactly like your parents, but, you know, a career over time, you know, if a career, and if you're 25 today, you're looking at maybe 50 more years of career, right? Mm-hmm, right. Truly. Yes. So we cannot imagine that, A, one company could hold our interest in our career for a whole 50 years. Also, we cannot imagine that we would not, um, all of us would not need, actually need skills that our current employer can't give us at a certain point in time in our career because they just don't do that. Um, at the sa- And thirdly, just because you're not the right person at the right time, uh, for the company that you're at now and it's time to go does not mean you won't be the best person at the right time later uh, when the company has moved forward in some way and you have also progressed in another way. So something to think about um, where I think before for my generation, I'm a boomer, um, we never really thought about returning. It wasn't sort of the idea. But today, I think we should all be thinking, employees should be thinking about, you know, as they craft their career, not just dismissing the fact that they've been at a company so they can't go back. And employers should be thinking about a talent pool that is benefited by an alumni group that is already predisposed towards it. So if we can think about those kinds of things, then the what we are doing is actually creating better cultures for companies um, that, you know, that people who are working there exist in because a company that is good to return to is a company that is hard to leave. And the more we can be thinking about that, the less friction we have in our organizations, the more profit and efficiency we have, which is what we're all looking for. Okay. So <laughs> yeah, I'm unpacking everything. Cause you know, you, unpacking everything. <laughs> yeah, you, you summarize the book very nicely. So, you know, one of the things that, that seems clear and I, you mentioned this is that, Mm-hmm. that some still high percentage of companies have policies saying they won't rehire employees, even if they were good employees, right? Not just the people Absolutely. left under a cloud. You know, this is actually anathema to so many of them. So Absolutely. You know, have sort of this, you're either with us or against us type type mentality. Yeah, or, which, or you're dead to me or you work you're here. Dead to, you're dead to me, right? <laughs> <laughs> Truly. Like, we don't even talk about those people. You're dead to me. I don't even remember their names. I won't talk about them. Um, I've had bosses like that. Where I've been in meetings. Yeah, I've had bosses been like that. We talk about somebody that would left, you know, left the company. Maybe it was like a sales meeting. And it's like, oh, yeah, that was that was Joe's account. Who? Yeah. It's who? like, oh, come on. <laughs> right. Right. As if Joe did not actually bring that account in and tender it to be, have organic growth, and then exactly. hopefully leave it well, blah, blah, blah. Yeah. Uh, I think this is um, this is one of the easiest things you can do to kill your company, is when you don't honor the contributions of people with who are either with you or not with you any longer, um, because uh, employees who have strong personal brands today 
Uh, those people who are high performers, who are driving businesses, um, they're going to have more influence and they already have more influence in an organization today than they may have had uh, even 20 years ago. And if they don't feel um, that they're going to be honored for their current and current contributions now and in the future, you know, what's to say that they should should stay around when they there's other places to go? Well, and, and you say that the people that have the hardest time with us are, are boomer bosses okay. and that still conflate this idea of loyalty with duration of tenure. Yes. And I find that sort of really ironic because it really was <laughs> in, the, in, the, in the boomer generation that really pioneered, you know, this, this new form of resume that wasn't lifetime employment, mm-hmm. but was multiple jobs. I mean, I, I, you know, there's no way I could fit my resume on one page. Right. Even before I started my company, uh, 16 years ago. Right. And yeah, I remember going through the transition where people looked at me askance after I had gone from sort of one startup to another startup relatively quickly. It was like two years at that point. And right. the, the first company just didn't make it. And, and I left, you know, three months before they closed their doors mm-hmm. to a point where, you know, 15 years later, people are sort of looking down their noses at me because I'd stayed at one company for seven years. Exactly. Well, I think there's two things on that, the boomers thing. One is um, boomers, I think, uh, you know, we got caught, many people got caught by two or three downturns, depending on where you are in the country, right? Mm-hmm. And so particularly the people in 2008, 2009, who may have been on the older edge of being boomers, who lost their jobs before they wanted to and then couldn't find them again. Um, and it took a long time for them to get rehired. You know, they're just a lot of them. And I've talked to lots of them are just trying to hang on to those jobs, right? They don't want to get priced out. They don't want to be old. Um, there's some statistic in Silicon Valley that says there are more men getting um, uh, plastic surgery today than there are women. You know, there's just trying wait, wait, to stay wait, because, young. Because they're trying to stay young enough to, to be employable. To be relevant, to be seemingly relevant, right? And um, so, uh, you know, these people are trying to hang on to their jobs at the same time as they see these younger employees like, I'm not getting what I want here. I'm off, right? So it feels twofold. One is they grew up thinking their parents were in jobs forever. And then the economy totally changed in the 80s and the 90s when publicly traded companies started shaving people for profit that they didn't really need to for the street, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. And lots of people got laid out. I mean, this changed the entire dynamic in the contract. But the myth of the golden watch, the myth of the, you know, retirement party, the myth of those things, you know, still prevails, um, even though they're really not real. They haven't been real for over 20 years. So we're sort of living with this ideal that is no longer true. Um, and I think some boomers that I speak with are sort of living in the disappointment of where they are versus where they had planned. And then they see these particularly younger people, you know, under 35, 36 year olds who look like they're not loyal, meaning they don't stay around. They don't do their time. Um, when, of course, if they were their children, they would say, don't leave. You know, if you're not getting what you want, if you don't have mm-hmm. work life balance, if the company is not going anywhere, you got to get out of there so you don't look stale. Right. So it is a definitely a. Um, a push me, pull me on that for sure. Well, I think one of the things that's changed, though, is mm-hmm. that for boomers, and maybe for Gen X as well, is the idea of going back to work at a previous mm-hmm. employer was perceived to be, yeah, coming back, with your, coming back with your tail between your legs. Exactly. As exactly. opposed to you're not coming returning as, as you know, 
conquering hero or you know somebody that they really mm-hmm. want you're going back because that's all you could get basically whether yeah. that was true or not but i i think that's what kept a lot of people from even thinking about it thinking about yeah. it considering it as an option yeah well i think there's two things on that one is absolutely you don't want to be seen like i didn't make it out there in the real world mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. number one number two because so many companies had either written or oral like in the air policies about this like you're dead to me or you work for me kind of ideas um it wasn't even a possibility so if they you know though you know they wouldn't even considered it um and i think what we're seeing today is you know the talent pool uh, for the people that who are the talent pool for educated, skilled, relevant workers who are keep who keep learning uh, with the economy and with the changes in the market, because that's, that's a key a group, point. Key point, right? right? Keep learning. That's a group. Keep learning. Keep learning um, is relatively small um, to the people who uh, to the need. Right. And the um, no matter where you are in the country, really, I mean, even small towns that don't have a lot of economy, those people who are keep learning, keep doing things, innovate, those people are in high demand. Um, <clears throat> and if you just cut yourself off from anybody who ever worked for you, you are cutting yourself off from a lot of people. The, you know, it's sort of inverse proportion to how old your company is. Right. Mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, which is very short sighted because well, no company looks today like they looked 10 years ago. Sure. Well, and and the the value of the boomerang, as you said, the boomerang is not just a function of a, an employee coming back. Oh, absolutely. But not. it's that employee could come back as a customer, as a customer, a, as a contractor, a, as a referral, as a referral, as an advocate. You know, the best company, you know, the gold standard company of this, I think, is McKinsey, um, and they, you know, they. They hire people, and then those people become their clients. That's how that sort of works, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And a lot of McKinsey people don't actually return to McKinsey. Some do, but a lot of them don't. But they are still in the McKinsey family. And what McKinsey has done is created an incredibly strong alumni program to the point that they, in every single office, they have one person dedicated to alumni um, Hmm. of their practice um, because they obviously see the value of their alumni becoming clients who can then become bigger clients and then bigger clients, you know? Um, and if you think about it as an ecosystem, you know, I think McKinsey's really set the gold standard on that, that we had, we can learn a lot from. Yeah. Well, I mean, I certainly have experienced this idea of people, employees leaving, going to work mm-hmm. for customers, going to work as consultants that, that, yeah, that do stay loyal. I mean, it, mm-hmm. they enjoyed working at the company and for whatever reason it wasn't working out at that time and yeah they were incredibly valuable resource as yeah. an outsider i you know incredibly so in my company which is now 15 years old we have rehired um over a dozen people now and we have over another half dozen six or seven who are either our clients or were clients and about 90 percent of our alumni for lots of different reasons they didn't want to be in pr anymore they went back to school they retired you know uh, 90 about 90 percent of them are you know positive contributors to our bottom line in some way shape or form so um you know it seems pretty straightforward to me. It doesn't seem like <laughs> rocket science. And that's probably my, you know, that's my short-sightedness on it. But <laughs> Well, and so you talked about the way the fact that sort of the contract has changed and mm-hmm. <clears throat> between employer and employee. And 
there's really sort of mixed data about how employees sort of view their careers. And I wonder if some of the examples that you give are they are they more relevant specifically sort of the tech segment? Um, because I was reading uh, part of a book uh, written by a guy named Tyler Cowen called The Complacent Class, and there mm-hmm. was a, a f- factoid in there that, that I thought was interesting. I was saying you know, the percentage of workers who switch jobs each year has declined by nearly 50% in the last 15 years. And switch jobs every year has declined. Uh, you mean voluntarily? Yes. Yeah, that's yeah. a different. Well, no, it's a com- it was, no, it was, it was actually it was, it was a combination of voluntary and involuntary. I think as his mm-hmm. stat was, but what he was saying is it's it's saying that the the enticement of leaving for a better job is actually diminishing these days because people seem to be more. Well, the name of his book is the complacent class. So <laughs> that employers are more complacent. I mean. What you're talking about sort of doesn't really speak to that. I mean, no, I I don't see that. Um, It doesn't mean it's not true in different places in the country. Um, What I see um, across the country in the sectors that I intersect with all the time Mm -hmm. is that um, the learning that you have to do to stay relevant is tremendous. Um, like my company, public relations firm, and today we're a public relations and digital marketing firm. And how we do the job today has morphed three times since when I started the company. We couldn't even imagine doing the things that we do today to do our work, you know, when I started the company. Mm -hmm. And that is true in almost every category. Um, And I think technology, you know, tech engineers, you know, their life is getting turned upside down by agile tech, you know, by sprinting instead of uh, sequential work and all Mm -hmm. this kind of stuff. You know mm-hmm. what I'm talking about, right? And you know, if you don't learn how to be an agile contributor, man, you're going to be out of a job, right? Um, the same is true if if you're in my business and you can't do Instagram, and you're 50 years old and you don't want to do Instagram. Well, too f too bad, <laughs> because you're just not going to be as relevant. Because right. you know, I was it's 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 just not whatever's current is what's current. So I think the the speed of learning has increased the speed the need for speed of learning has increased over time. The complacent work, you know, I would say if there's complacency in the workforce, if you're saying workforce versus workplace, workforce, yes. Workforce, I'm not sure it's complacency as much as please let me stay here until I'm done. Because um we know at any moment uh, we have no control over our companies. We have no control if they're going to get bought by somebody else, if they're going to downsize, if they're going to spin off a sec, you know spin off a, a business unit and goes to somebody else. We see this every single day in the business news. You have no control over the things that could impact your actual you know having a job. Um, so I'm not sure. I don't know if I agree with him. I'll have to read his book. But that's, yeah. that would be a good point counterpoint conversation. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, bring back the old Saturday Night Live uh, yes. show, Shana. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> well, I, th- I think it is interesting because you know one of the things that that this author argues, and you and we're seeing perhaps you know some of this is is occurring. You see some of the the numbers mm-hmm. in our economy is that you know productivity is way down. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think that's at a low since World War II. You know, we're at a point now. Um, you know, the number of percentage of people that are moving between states mm-hmm. is inward. You know, the intermigration in the United States has dropped off dramatically. Mm-hmm. You know, another statistic that this, that's the one they quoted here. Is, but where do they go? I mean, where do those people go? Because the people who would move from. Well, they used to do it for jobs. Middle. They used to do it for yeah. jobs. But the cost of living from point A to point B is so dramatically different. 
I don't know that they, it's, you know, I don't know. And the, and, and the quality of life is so different that uh, I think there are other things around jobs that are impacting that. You're just trying to get people not to move to California. Well, <laughs> I love California and it is a great place to be. <laughs> and if you're an engineer, you can get a job here tomorrow. Uh, um, no, uh, but California, you know, people come to California and if you leave California, most people don't come back because the cost of living here, you get adjusted to it and then you go somewhere else. Like we have a lot of people move to Madison, a lot of people move to Minneapolis and those not are not inexpensive places to live. But what, what your dollar buys is so much more than it oh, yeah. buys you. People get used to it, right? Interesting. So, so people leave, anyway. so leave San Francisco to go to Madison, Wisconsin. They do. Hmm. I went the other I, way from Madison, Wisconsin right. to San Francisco. So. I know you did. <laughs> <laughs> long, long time ago. Somehow the cost the cost of the winter outweighed the cost exactly. of the living. Right? Exactly. All right. So let's talk about back to a culture of, of return. Mm-hmm. And yeah. you talk about that as, you know, you create a culture of return. It, it creates loyalty, creates a culture of people staying. And you had sort of, uh, you know, four or five elements of that that I'd sort of be interested to go into. So once you talk about a culture of appreciation that you need mm-hmm. to create within a company. So define what that means. So a culture of appreciation is one where you actually say out loud and you do not imply by giving people a paycheck that you appreciate people's work. And um, this is something that for me was very challenging to learn because I grew up with a father who um, is a cardiac surgeon and please and implied were thank you because, you know, if I said please and thank you every time in the operating room, Lee, someone would die on the table. (laughs) That's a a a quote, right? (laughs) That is a quote. That's what he said to me over and over and over again. So um, when I, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of research on this from Wharton, from Harvard, from uh, Yale, Uh, the London School of Economics and other places around people perform better and faster with more efficiency um, when they feel appreciated. So actually being a culture of appreciation where you say out loud, you did a good job. Thank you for your effort. Thank you for making this happen. Thank you. Just thank you for throughout your day. Um, They can measure it and they have measured it right to the bottom line from anywhere between uh, and there's new data on this. So anywhere between sort of 7% profit to up to 21% profit. So people, uh, teams that are appreciative of each other, appreciative are appreciated by other people, uh, you know, just do a better job and faster than teams that don't. And, you know, this, they were human, right? So when you're, when you're not, when you don't feel appreciated, all you do is grind. You grind on it all day long. Of course, that's inefficient. Of course, you're not going to do your best job if you're grinding on the fact that people don't appreciate your work. Um, It is one of the biggest swings you can do um, in a company. It's just move from just sort of doing the work to actually taking a moment to say, thank you for the work. Mm -hmm. Um, and only if it's good work. Don't say thank you for work that's not good, right? But most people do good work. And right. more people will do better work if you said thank you for it. And um, there is a lot of data on that to say. So a culture of appreciation, which is not, you know, there are so many places how, how, I go. How do you teach a CEO that? Yeah. I mean, it's not a matter well, of, you can show people the facts and the facts, so, you know, they can be skeptical or accepting. story. Yeah, so what I did was share my own story on it. And so we track every 15 minutes of our day, right? And um, we can see in any moment of time, I can see 
who's efficient and who's not versus the plan, at least. Mm-hmm. And so over a month, uh, when I started doing it, I felt like such a tool. I was like, oh, my God, people are going to think I'm just, you know, I'm faking it. But um, I got it got easier and easier and easier. And then other people were doing it. And then we talked about it. Um, and then we did this thing for a staff, a staff meeting. Every staff meeting for eight weeks, we did appreciation. And appreciation was at the end of the staff meeting, you find three people in that staff meeting, and you told them what you appreciated about their day, about them in the past week. Which, which by the way, on the surface, sounds like one of those really bad Thanksgiving dinner rituals where you go around and talk about what you're thankful for. But go ahead, yes. (laughs) It does sound terrible. And it was like, oh, my God, this is so awkward. But you have to practice it because it's not normal for us, particularly in a business situation. So I forced it on the team, and it was like a little awkward, and they got easier, and they got easier, get it easier. And then people were saying please and thank you throughout the day. And then over two months, I was able to see, you know, the workflow is basically the same, but the number of non-billable hours went down. Hmm. Well, that's money. Yeah. Well, yes. So I share my own experience and how hard it was for me. And when I can say that to CEOs who are looking at me like I'm crazy, I just share my own experience and I ask them to try it. So, and then I practice with them. Let's practice how you might say a thing. You know, let's practice how you might appreciate saying, "Who do you think did a good job last week? Who went out of their way for you? Someone went out of their way for you. No matter who you are, no matter how much of a jerk you are, someone went out of your way for you." Why did you just go thank them for it? Oh, but Lee, what if they're expecting a raise for that? Well, then tell them they don't get a raise for that. You're just appreciating their work. You know, so part of it is like what's pent up and what people think they're going to ask for, what the expectation will be if you say thank you. If you get rid of that and just have this even playing field of appreciation, good work gets appreciated, then you don't have to worry about it, right? But when you don't have an, uh, when your paycheck is an implied thank you, Everything is suspect. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. So one of the things that really happens when you have this culture of appreciation is you start being human again. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot to be said for being human. I mean, we're in, <laughs> in a world when, you know, a lot of pressures to automate more and more work functions that are taking place across all disciplines. Absolutely. But at the end of the day, it's still about relationships, still about a person to person. And yeah, if you can feel like this person really cares about what I'm doing then, yeah, everybody starts pulling together in a much, much, much broader fashion. And I think that the, if, you know, it's a business decision. I mean, you could, you could take it all the way down to a business decision and take the empathy out of it. I wouldn't because I'm an empathetic person. But you could just take it, you know, if I have less griping going on, <laughs> I should do everything I can to have less griping going on because less griping is more inefficiency. More inefficiency is more, or more waste. More waste is less profit. Mm-hmm. Um, and what the, the variable is a, is a human being. Well, human beings matter. Human beings, their feelings matter about their work. Yeah, feelings matter in general. I mean, I, one thing that, that I work with people on is in coaching and so on is, and this is, this is hard for people to do. Same thing. It's you know, asking somebody, like if you meet a potential business mm-hmm. customer for the first time, asking them not to say, hey, how you doing? But saying, so how are you doing? Yeah. The difference between, hey, how you doing? Versus, so how are you doing? Huge difference. You know, 180 degree Huge difference. difference. And, and looking people in the eye. And looking people in the eye. And suddenly people right. think you start caring. Yeah. Because you probably do. You do if you're going to ask the question that way. Yeah. You definitely are. And it's extremely difficult for people to do. Mm-hmm. It is. And I think it's it's also uh, men have a harder time than women. 
And sometimes women get uh, judged harder for like being too empathetic. Like, how are you? What's going on? You know, all that stuff. And the even, you know, down the middle is probably where we all need to be. Yeah. Yeah. Yes. I, I'm sitting here thinking of examples of people that are too empathetic. Yes. So <laughs> the other thing you talk about that is a culture of leadership. Yeah. And you, you call leadership the new black. Mm-hmm. Um, and you cite that the millennials, at least that your research is showing, that they mm-hmm. often cite that there's, you know, lack of potential leadership opportunities as a reason to leave. So mm-hmm. I found that sort of interesting because, you know, a lot of times you're reading leadership books and, yeah, I interview guests about leadership on the show is, you know, you start sort of the leader within, right? I mean, sort of me mm-hmm. as an individual, it's not like the position needs to be stowed on me. Right. Uh, well, I think there's two things on that. One, I think millennials think they can lead from any, they can lead from any seat in the boat. So they don't have to have the CEO moniker to be able to be a leader. And I think that's true. Well, if that was um, the case, why would they think they have to leave in order to lead? Because they're not being appreciated for uh-huh, their leadership capability. Okay. <laughs> <clears throat> there we go. All they're right. not being acknowledged for the fact that they can't, they don't have to be the top dog to play a leadership role in getting things done. They just don't um, appreciate it for it. Which everybody does. That's not, yeah. that's not you know, a millennial thing. That's everybody. That's, well, which is my other point. If you can create an environment where millennials thrive, everybody thrives. But the reverse is not necessarily true. The reverse being? If you create environments where boomers thrive, millennials may not. And if you create an environment for Gen Xers, boomer, I mean, millennials also may not. They might, but they may not. But if you create environments that th- millennials thrive in, both well, all millennials, not all, but you know what I mean. Generally, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. millennials, Gen Xers, Boomers, and Silence will thrive because it is an environment where you understand your role. It is an environment that um, you're where your work is appreciated. It is an environment where your personal potential is being mapped against your career versus your personal potential being mapped against the company. And it is a an environment where um, opportunity to craft a career is placed uh, at the center and on me, not on the company, um, to actually make things happen. So shouldn't leaders, you know, corporate leaders, someone like yourself running a company, shouldn't they make the assumption that boomers should have thrived already? I well, mean, how, I how much emphasis do they put on on that as opposed to well, know, boomers, the, the cohort that makes up the bulk of their, their employee yeah. force? I think uh, boomers did thrive. And then they got the... Um, Boomers were in a, you know, there are so many boomers. There, the, there, one, there were so many boomers, right? Number two is our economy was expanding at an unprecedented rate that many economists say will never happen again in history because it never had happened before in history where the economy expanded at such a, a exponential rate over 25 years, the same 25 years where these boomers were coming into their own and coming into the workforce and then retiring. So we have a lot of people almost 80 million people coming in at the same time as the our economy the US economy is expanding at such a rate to able to be able to absorb all these boomers then you have the economy shrinking and then shrinking and then shrinking again because that's what economies do at the same time as as boomers who are used to a certain amount of uh, freedom they're used to a certain amount of achievement they're used to a certain amount of compensation start losing all those things but their lifestyle not doesn't necessarily match the fact that they've lost it, right? They were living beyond their means, but they were making it do because opportunity was so ripe. Um, and we really, and you said you saw it in um, 
2000 and we saw it in definitely saw it in 2008 2009 mm-hmm. where how people were living far outstripped the reality of the situation right mm-hmm. and got, and they got caught so um they got caught many boomers got caught think i mean i was um much obviously i'm 52 now that was 16 years ago in 2000 so i was 40 42 years old basically you're, you're right bar- you're barely a boomer and the last year of boomers well, so thank say. god because you know the sixty percent of the money that I had saved that I lost, I've recovered in more. But right. if I was sixty-four, I have many know many people who were sixty-four, sixty-five at that time, who did not get to retire. They were thankful to keep their jobs, and they're now retiring now at seventy-three, seventy-four, seventy-five. So boomers had a time, but we did. I don't think boomers took advantage of that time to actually prepare for a future because we weren't. We you know it was just we were conditioned. It's always going to be good. It's always going to be good. Xers, it's a smaller group of Xers, 45 million Xers in this country. You know, it should, the numbers should be that all these boomers go out into the, you know, go into the sunset and these Xers are just filling in, filling in opportunities, right? But they're they're not leaving (laughs) and millennials are like a tsunami coming out of college, right? So right now millennials are between 16 and 36 and, um, they come out of college, they don't, they're moving home, so they don't have to make as much, and they want to work, and they're more relevant, right? And mm-hmm. they know more technology, they can do things faster. Mm-hmm. And so Xers really, although the numbers would say that, of course, they had tons of opportunity because there weren't enough of them to fill the jobs that we had in the year 2000, which is the experience I was telling you before, right? Mm-hmm. That this, this economy we're in now um, has not presented that opportunity. So... Um, I think that if we've learned anything is that we, one, we can't count on an economy to take care of us. We can't count on companies to take care of us. Leaders now need to be thinking about talent, becoming a talent brand as employees, as opposed to an employer brand so that they can attract the best people who have the strongest personal brands who are worried about their personal brands and being able to craft the career that they want, where they think about the companies that they've worked for as sort of bumper stickers on their career, not as hallmarks of themselves. Got it. Now, it's, uh, you're, you're ending on the same note we started, which is... <laughs> 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 Look at that. She summed, summed it up again. Um, no, I, I, that's a perfect way to, to exit on that. Um, Lee, so thanks so much for joining me again. Andy, thank you so much for having me again. I really appreciate it. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. So tell folks how they can connect with you and find out more about your book and your business. The best place to go is my website, which is www.leecarraher.com, L-E-E-C-A-R-A-H-E-R.com. Or on Twitter, I'm at Lee Carraher. And uh, I'm blogging about all this kind of stuff all the time. So that's where you can find my books and my company. Okay. And the book's available on Amazon and all your favorite places? All your favorite places. Excellent. Well, again, Lee, as always, great to talk with you. And friends, thanks for spending this time with me. Remember, come back tomorrow. Join me again. Uh, until then, you know, take a minute if you can, go to iTunes, leave a review, subscribe to Accelerate. We want to hear what we can do to help you better. So again, thanks for joining me. And until next time, this is Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. <laughs> <laughs>